you're tuning in to the Mind Matters podcast, a production of the University of Kentucky Sanders Brown Center on Aging, where we focus on research as it relates to brain health. I'm April Stauffer, your host, and I'm so excited to have a special guest with me today, Dr. Elaine Reschke Hernandez, who's an assistant professor of music therapy from the UK College of Fine Arts, and just recently joined Sanders Brown as an affiliate faculty member. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to talk with you today. Such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, today we're talking about music, and I thought it would be wonderful to have you come on and share about some of the research you're doing. I'm really intrigued by music and how it relates to persons with dementia. Can you tell us what music therapy is? Um, so I think as human beings, we all kind of um, have this sense of music having therapeutic value or influencing us in some way, like making us feel good or, how, uh, you know, uh, we feel particularly moved by music that we really like, or we might tear up, um, might help us feel energized, those kinds of things uh, we intuitively do a lot of times um, to help us in therapeutic ways. Um, so uh, what I do as a music therapist is um, so all music therapists are musicians and we use all different kinds of music making and music experiences as our tools in engagement in a therapeutic relationship with other people to work on healthcare and wellness goals. Um, so it's not an educational kind of outcome that we're looking for. We might be working on helping somebody calm down or engage more with other people in their environment. We might be helping them um, with their speech in conjunction with a speech language pathologist. Um, lots of different options that we might be working on. And so in order to learn how to do that, we receive um, at least 1200 hours of supervised clinical training. And uh, we also have a strong education background in music, of course, and non-music clinical skills in um, psychology and therapeutic relationship building. When you work with a music therapist, you get all of that and all of the, that, those skills and training that come along with it. Uh, in my uh, earlier career, I was working with um, children with severe and profound disabilities in the public schools and um, children with autism and working on a variety of different skills related to their educational experiences. And then I've also worked with adolescents in a hospital setting post-operatively after they'd had surgery for severe scoliosis and um, working with a physical therapist to help them sit in the, um, tolerate sitting in a chair for um, an hour after surgery and um, using music therapeutically to help them tolerate that. And then um, most recently I'm working with older adults, but, and then along the way I've had <laughs> other various experiences. So you seem to have a vast array of experience with all kinds of populations. I'm amazed and impressed. Have you noticed any similarities in the responses of the populations or is music therapy a one size fits all kind of thing for people? Well, I would say that uh, 
there's always a way that I can find to adapt a music experience so someone can engage. I can usually find some way to engage somebody in music. So you do not have to be a music, uh, a musician or be musically inclined or carry a tune or anything to benefit from music therapy. Um, it's my job to adapt it in a way that you can engage to the extent that you want to. And then the other thing is, uh, flexibility. Um, it's so incredibly important as a music therapist to be flexible because you can go in with a plan and think, oh, I'm going to use these songs, or I'm going to do this improvisation and, um, I'm gonna, you know, and then it turns out, you know, uh, like what would happen to me in the schools is we'd hit flu season and half the classroom would be gone or all but one kid would be gone from the classroom I was working with. Or, you know, I walk into um, somebody's room and um, they're asleep. So, you know, what do you, what do, you do in those situations? So flexibility is 100% uh, common across all of those. But uh, other than that, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, what music? And you know, it's um, it 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 varies as much as there are differences between human beings as to what music I use. It's more about how I implement the music than um, what music per se. Okay, so give an example of some of the work that you did in skilled nursing facilities. Uh, so I had um, small groups of people with varying stages of uh, moderate and severe dementia. And so in that kind of a group, um, I was working with them to be more engaged with each other socially, um, provide opportunities to express their um, opinions and have autonomy Um make choices. You know, if you're in a care setting, um, unfortunately, a lot of times you don't get a lot of choice, right? You don't have a lot of choice about what time you get up, what time you have a meal, what you wear, um, who's in your environment, the sounds going on, but I can give you a choice between songs. I can give you a choice whether or not you play a drum along with this song. I give you a choice of whether or not you want to move to this song. I give you a cho choice if you want to sleep during the whole thing or not, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. um, and then, you know, I can set things up. Like I mentioned, adapting, I can, uh, set it up so that you can, help me write a song and give you choices about what the words say or what the topic is of the song. Or um, if we're going to write a song about somebody and it doesn't have to be complicated and, uh, and, you know, this beautiful thing that we're going to, you know, mass produce or anything. It's just for us in this moment and to experience that, that, together. And so you might be thinking, oh, that has to be this really complex thing. And it doesn't. And, uh, uh, you know, and then there's also a lot of passive ways of engaging in music. And those are also choices, um, choice of how much you engage. And then there are a lot of really cool ways if you think about music is at its core social. So there are a lot of ways I can engage people socially that don't rely on verbal communication. So we can gather around a very large drum together and have a conversation entirely through rhythm and not, and, you know, even include some kind of musical jokes in there that uh, we've kind of learned since, since childhood of, of, of back and forth uh, music making. And I also worked with um, 
some people one-on-one some a lot of times one of the big telling things is uh family members would rearrange their schedules for when i was going um to see their loved one because they would want to be there when they could interact with with them and the music and and have those moments of connecting with one another um not necessarily in conversation but you know through song or through playing instruments together just you know sometimes it was just more about me making all the music and them sitting passively and and holding hands and listening together you know I think music has a way of tying people together you said it was a social thing and when the words you know are not easy for people to come up with there's so much more to connection and communicating with the person with dementia than just the words that you say holding the hands the body language the facial expressions Um, It's beautiful and it's great that your music can bring that out in people so that they can have those moments of shared joy with one another. Um, What piqued your interest in studying music as it relates to persons with dementia? It's sort of a meandering answer that I have. So I grew up in a neighborhood where there weren't any other little kids. It was all older adults whose kids had grown and lived and and then um my three siblings were a lot older than me. I was an oops child. So <laughs> um I grew up kind of like an only child. And so I spent a lot of time sitting with older adults in my neighborhood from like age six, just playing cards with them or like. I know that one woman in my neighborhood, she taught me how to crochet when I was in second grade. And, you know, that like I had tea parties at this other lady's house in my neighborhood. And I just always really enjoyed spending time with them. And um, one of my first jobs uh, was as a, a cleaning person in a nursing home, actually. And I got in trouble with my supervisor because I would sit in their rooms and just listen to them and talk with them instead of cleaning. And um, so, you know, those are kind of signs that uh, I, I always love and, and, and enjoy very much making music with everybody, you know, but um, older adults hold a really special place in my heart. And I, I don't know, I just, um, I have a series of events in my doctoral program uh, led to me um, really developing a love of research with this population. And um, I had a really wonderful course that I took um, with Dan Trinnell at the University of Iowa. And um, he gave me the opportunity to do research in his lab. And then I joined his lab and got to do a couple of projects independently um, that that gave me opportunities to work with older adults with dementia. And the more I've learned, the more I want to learn and um, the more ideas I keep getting and the more need I see for trying to figure out how to help more. And um, so that, you know, that's kind of my meandering. (laughs) I love it. I always ask that question of people just because life takes us in so many different directions and we end up here at the center on aging and we all come from such different places and just so varied, but it's amazing to me how, you know, you, it sounds like your story all along, you've had a path 
to working with older adults and perhaps people with dementia. So that's a great story. And I love listening to people's stories. Um, older adults have so much to share, so much wisdom and experience that we can just obtain so much wisdom from them. So, oh, I was going to just share that when I work with my um, students and, um, and when I've supervised students in their clinical experiences with older adults, one of the first things that I always tell them is please remember that you are just getting a snapshot of their life. They have had this rich experience of a full long life before now. And you need to remember that when you interact with them um, and not just see all these signs and symptoms of what are appearing right now in this moment of their life. And, and I, I just think that's so important and, and it's easy to lose sight of, especially, um, you know, I don't have an experience myself as being an older adult yet. So the, I still remind myself of that all the time. Like, I don't know what that's like yet, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just, it's so important to remember people's rich lived experiences. And you can't discount them just because they're a person that has a brain disease. They are still yeah. human being an adult that deserves our respect and needs to be treated appropriately. So um, you're in your second year as a second as a Sanders Brown Rec Scholar. Can you tell our listeners what that is and how you've used that grant money to support your research? Absolutely. So Rec stands for Research Education Component, um, and that is a, a, an aspect of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And each of the centers around the United States has a different focus for their RAC scholars. Um, some of them focus on postdocs, for example. The one at the University of Kentucky happens to focus on junior faculty who want to um, focus their, uh, their career on working uh, on research with people with dementia. Um, so it was a, a good fit for me to apply to, and it gives me protected time and funding and wonderful mentorship from very uh, talented and experienced researchers from Sanders Brown. And it's given me the opportunity to just uh, pick apart some challenges that I've encountered to doing some of the clinical research that I've been working on. And, and just be, be more prepared for seeking large external funding from, uh, for example, the National Institutes of Health. I know there's a lot of support financially from the NIH at Sanders Brown. So um, it's a great opportunity for that. You've also got a fellowship through Impact AD, the Institute on Methods and Protocols for Advancement of Clinical Trials in Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementia. What does that allow you to do? So that um, was a transformational experience. Um, that was a fully funded um, fellowship opportunity where I went for a week and learned from these leading scholars in clinical trials research with um, people with dementia and become connected and embedded in this network of, of researchers. Uh, and I got uh, lots of one-on-one -on -one guidance and support and mentorship on how to, how to refine the research that I'm trying to do and make it 
more understood by a broad audience and really understand what is the latest cutting edge uh, research information that's coming out in this field. It's just both the Rec Scholar and Impact AD opportunities have just connected me with with people who are very generous with their time and expertise. And, um, you know, I have wonderful expertise and training in music and in music therapy and in my clinical work, but I don't necessarily have, um, like I never did a postdoc. I did have wonderful research experience with Dan Trinnell at University of Iowa, but I have not yeah, I, like these opportunities have given me the um, chance to figure out how to write a huge grant for NIH, which is like beyond my wildest dreams. Um, it's been a, a wonderful goal, but I didn't know that I would ever be able to do that. And and these opportunities are making it a reality for me. That's and that means that I'll be able to teach my students and other music therapists and I mean, it's just going to have a snowball effect. I already see the difference in how I'm mentoring my students in their research projects um, because of these programs. And are you finding with the students that you have now, is there more of a desire to work with this population with music therapy? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that a lot of my students, they're like me, they just really enjoy working with people. And um, there is, does seem to be some more interest, but I think in fairness to other populations, I think that our students develop interests in a lot of different areas. Sure. Though too, so sure. Yeah. So with your work um, with the impact AD and meeting other researchers, you know, across the country, are you finding that music therapy is being studied a lot for persons with dementia and interventions that way? That works for, for care partners, um, caregivers, as well as, um, you know, musicians who want to go in to perform in a, a care facility, for example. Could we create a menu of options of here, are some guidelines of what kinds of things you might try? Here are some guidelines. Think about how you perform in a symphony hall. That's going to be a very different situation than a care facility. So what are some things that we can do to provide guidance? Those are good questions to, you know, ponder as, as we try to come up with something that fits and works for the community and individuals. Uh, because yeah. we have a lot of people with early dementia, too, that are still trying to live in community and like to go to the symphony. And how can we make that more dementia friendly? you know. Absolutely. And I will say there's this whole um, effort called um, the Sound Health Network. And um, there's a partnership between the Kennedy Center um, and NIH and the National Endowment uh, for the Arts uh, in trying to provide more research funding and educational support for people in a variety of, variety of fields. Um, to try and understand these kinds of questions. Um, and so I think, you know, um, the partnership and interdisciplinary collaboration is so key to all of that um, because, you know, as I said, music therapists, we are trained clinicians and we are good researchers too, but we also need researchers like 
um, those at Sanders Brown to work with us and um, to to do the best research and then, you know, down the pipeline, um, have the best impact for families who are, are dealing with this. Right. Well, thank you, Elaine, so much for joining me today. And if listeners want to get in touch with you, we'll put your information on the podcast for them to access. Um, but thanks so much for all you do and for the impact that you are making long-term on people with dementia and their loved ones. Mind Matters is brought to you by the University of Kentucky Sanders Brown Center on Aging. Our goal is to improve the health of older adults in Kentucky and beyond through research dedicated to understanding the aging process and age-related brain diseases. To learn more about the center, visit our website at https colon forward slash forward slash medicine.uky.edu forward slash centers forward slash SBCOA. And follow us on Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and the Sanders Brown Center on Aging YouTube channel.